0: praise you this morning we praise you we are happy this morning to confess our weaknesses lord to admit our guilt because we know like we've just sung you are strong in our weakness the wrath of god has been satisfied god would you pour out your grace upon us this morning We love, we love to sing about Jesus and worship Jesus, to read in your word about Jesus. So God, I just pray that you would lead us to him this morning. Lead us to him that we might know him and trust him and love him more. We praise you, God, as we open your word. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit Perform heart surgery this morning to strip us away so that there would be more and more of Christ. We love you, God, and we submit ourselves now to your authority and your power and your word. In Jesus' name, we continue to worship. Amen. You may be seated. Being labeled needy in our culture, to say the least, is not a good thing. We have terms for needy people like parasite and leech. And we have phrases for needy people like they suck the life out of you or they drain your batteries. Uh, we talk about our weaknesses in just the right way so that we simultaneously portray humility as a strength. Uh, we see asking for help as the last possible resort. Neediness uh, is not a positive value in most of our eyes. But I think the irony is, is that we are actually extremely needy beings. Uh, none of us can be experts on eno- enough topics not to make it through life without asking for help. At the very least, we've been brought up into this world as a, as a young child and. On our way out of the world, someone will have to take care of us as well. If we're honest, all all along the way, from the moment of of our conception to the moment of our death, we are needy people. Uh, Recently, I was reminded of a fairly well-known quote, that God helps those who help themselves. I wonder what you think of that. I wonder if that's the philosophy that we live by. Uh, But maybe more importantly, I wonder what Jesus thinks of that. God helps those who help themselves. Is that Christianity? Is that the good news of the gospel? As we work through the gospel of Mark uh, this year, we'll continue to see Jesus Jesus interact with needy people, people who can't help themselves themselves. And as Jesus comes face to face with these people who are in desperate need, what we're going to see is that not only does Jesus not communicate that God helps those who help themselves, Jesus communicates the exact opposite, that God's power, God's wisdom, God's mercy, God's love, and God's very heart pours out to helpless and needy people through His Son, Jesus Christ. In this world of puffed-out chests and over-aggressiveness, and self-sufficiency, and Facebook experts, God counters with grace. God, out of His infinite resources, loves to meet the needs of people who are helpless. And why? Why would God love that? Well, I think one reason is that it proves, uh, proves without a doubt that God is so much more worthy to be God than we are that God actually glorifies Himself. He presents His majesty to the world through His grace, through giving Himself to people who do not deserve Him. The real problem in this world is not neediness. It's self-sufficiency. The real problem in this world is not weakness. It is pride. The real problem in this world is not dependence. It is an attempt to live our life independent of God and independent of the people whom he has put in our life to help us. And the real, living, resurrected Jesus is is here this morning. He is speaking to us this morning. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, your self-help isn't working. What we're going to see as we look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1-12 through this morning, is that we are so needy that we need Jesus both to reveal to us what our deepest need is and to be the Savior who meets that need. That Jesus must show us what our need really even is and then also show us that he's the only one who could possibly meet that need. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue in the book of Mark, reading verses 1 through 12, right where we left off last week. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of God to us this morning. So today, our goal is to redefine how we view neediness, to think differently about how we view weakness. If I could sum the sermon up in three words, it would be this. We need Jesus. So, first, from verses one through four, if you're taking notes, we are needy. We are needy. Uh, So, let's get the story in mind. Jesus comes out of hiding, and apparently, he comes home. And on his arrival back home, a big crowd came and gathered to him. Uh, Now, I want you to put yourself on the scene. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere that was really crowded, somewhere where you could barely move around, right? This is, this is breaking the fire code, right? There is no getting up to go to the bathroom. You, you, are, you are packed in like sardines. And Mark draws our attention to one specific detail that I think sets up the tension for the whole story. He says there was no more room, not even at the door. So if you were to show up there, if you were to arrive there that day, you wouldn't have been able to get in because there was no room, not even at the door. And in the next verse, Mark tells us, and they came, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. But we already know that there's no room in the house. You know, have these men come all the way here only to be turned away? Like, I don't care if they had literally just picked this man up and carried him across the street. This was a big investment by these four friends. To carry their, their paralyzed friend to Jesus was a huge investment, right? He's paralyzed. This guy could not have gotten to Jesus with all the willpower in the world. And so they're determined, uh, they love their friend, and they're willing to take a big risk for him, which is what we see in verse 4. It says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, you know, imagine being there as the dust started to fill the room and the, the sunlight begins to crack through the ceiling. You I mean, I think about all the questions that might be going through your head. I know, I know if I was there, there'd be a number of questions going through my head. You know, who, who is this guy? What happened to him? Are they planning to fix the roof when this is over? <laughs> but I think the most important question that would be pumping through my head, the question that I'd be most curious about would be, how is Jesus going to respond? just been interrupted in the middle of his sermon a man through the roof what's Jesus going to say but before we answer that question uh, let's just pause and consider what this story teaches us so far about our needs I think from verses one through four we see that we need a word we need healing and that we need other people notice that when this crowd gathers to Jesus the text says in verse two and he was preaching the word to them Jesus is revealing uh, things to them about themselves. He's revealing things to them about the world in which they live. And ultimately, Jesus is revealing things to them about God. None of us understands everything. None of us has life totally figured out. We need Jesus to come into our lives and tell us how to think and what to love and how to live. We are here this morning because we acknowledge that we need a word from Jesus. We need Jesus to tell us how to live our lives. We need a word. But notice also that the reason that these four men are bringing their friend to Jesus, and I think this is crucial to understanding the whole story, is that on some level, they are acknowledging that their friend is broken. They want their friend to be able to experience life as it was meant to be lived. They want his body to work. And while not all of us have issues of paralysis, in some way or another, all of us are broken in some way or another, we are not experiencing life on the level at which God had created us to experience it. We need Jesus to put us back together again, to heal our brokenness. And finally, we can't help but notice that um, while this man is obviously paralyzed and in a desperate need for Jesus, he was also completely dependent upon his friends. The only way that he was going to get to where Jesus was is if these friends of his helped him out. We all need other people. Uh, not only is it arrogant to act like we don't need other people, but let's be honest—it's just foolish. Um, this is just a shameless plug. Uh, maybe this year is the year that you decide that you're willing to make whatever sacrifices necessary uh, that you need to make in your life to join a small group here at this church. Um, I can't promise you that the people in your small group will become your best friends for the rest of your life. Uh, I can't promise you that it won't be a little bit messy at times. Uh, I can't promise you that they would carry you around on a bed if you got paralyzed. But certainly, certainly it is good to be surrounded by the people of God. Certainly it is good to have people in our lives who are praying for us, who are caring for us. Uh, Even now I see some heads nodding because you're in these groups and you know that while it might be messy... There's so much benefit. There's so much value. Uh, last year, when, our, when Allie and I were going through a tough time, um, our group showed up unannounced with a meal. We were in need, and they showed up for us at just the right time, and, and it, was, it was just what we needed. So we need the word of Jesus. We need the healing of Jesus, and we need the people of Jesus. Point of the story so far, we are needy. But now, back to that question. How will Jesus respond? So second, from verse 5, Jesus reveals our deepest need. Jesus reveals our deepest need. When these four men dropped their friends down through the roof, they had to be feeling excited. They had to be feeling like their resilience paid off. You know, they, they took a risk. They dropped their friend down through the roof. Now he's face to face with Jesus. And you can imagine sort of a hush just comes over the room. You know, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? How will Jesus respond But instead of relieving the tension, it's almost like Jesus cranks the tension up even more. In verse 5, he says, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Huh? Your sins are forgiven. You know, you can almost imagine what's going through their minds. Uh, Jesus you do realize that the reason they went through all this trouble is because the man is paralyzed, right? The reason they, they brought him to you was because his body isn't working right. This is clearly not what anybody was expecting. Had his friends carried him all, the, all this way for this? You Were know, their backs broken and their shirts sweaty to bring this man to Jesus to talk about sins? Sins? Talk about forgiveness. But remember, we are in such desperate need of Jesus that we need him both to reveal to us what our deepest need is and to be the Savior who meets that need. You know, we think we know what our needs are. We think we know what would make us whole again. You know, we think if I could just have this, then my life will be back together. If I could just get a little help in this area of my life. then then everything would make sense. It's exactly what these friends were thinking. If we could just get our friend to Jesus, then his life will be better. And we think that way all the time as well. So when Jesus is met with this broken man, why does he choose to deal with him on the level of his sins before dealing with him on the level of what seems to be the obvious and apparent need from our perspective? Well, the reason that Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven is because Jesus knows that the real need that this man has, the real deep need that he has more than any other need, is to be reconciled to God. That for anything else in this man's life to make sense, he has to be forgiven in the court of heaven. I mean, what good is it? What good is it to have your paralysis undone, but to be guilty before a holy God? Jesus has eternal focus. Jesus has divinely ordered priorities. If the forgiveness of Jesus doesn't come into our lives, then what does it matter if we get what we want for a few short years on this, life, on this earth? When uh, Allie and I lived in Raleigh, there was a time when my car was consistently running hot. And uh, what I thought was, you know, I'll just add some water to it every once in a while. Well, sure enough, uh, I needed, started needing to add more and more and more water to the point where one day I got stranded on the interstate. You know, if I had just taken it in and had it examined and paid, it, paid a little bit of money to have it fixed, it would have been no big deal. But I kept trying to fix the problem by treating the symptoms. And what Jesus is saying is that all these things in our lives that we look to to fix us, you know, if I could just get this house, if I could just find this husband, and if I could just get my body to work right, all of those things are just like pouring water in the engine. It's like just treating the symptoms, but, but it's not actually getting down and dealing with the real issue. The real issue is that we have a broken relationship with God. And until that relationship is healed, until we receive forgiveness from God, then nothing else in our life will make sense. Nothing else in our life will work until we've been healed at the root, until we've been healed in what really matters. In another place, Jesus illustrated how foolish our symptom treating is. He told people that they had washed the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup was still dirty. Uh, imagine going to a uh, local restaurant somewhere here in Myrtle Beach. They, they bring your water out to you, and there's floaties you know, floating around in your water. And you look up at the waiter, and you say, uh, Excuse me, um, did you clean these cups? And he says, Oh, yeah, of course, we clean the outside. You say, Well, okay, but what about the inside? And he says, well, you know, the person before you, they had their drink in there, and it was, you know, sloshing around, keeping it clean. So we just, we washed the outside, we poured the water in, and we brought it to your table. Jesus is saying, that's what it's like when you and I try to fix our lives from the outside in. When we try to patch up the symptoms, but never deal with the fact that the real problem is a broken relationship with God, that that's the heart of the matter. And that if we get forgiveness with God, then we can start to work from the inside out. But it can't go the other way around. We can't just patch up symptoms. We can't just clean the outside of the cup. So whatever you think, whatever we think our real needs in life are, what Jesus is teaching us this morning is that the absolutely deepest, most urgent need is forgiveness from God. And here's the best part. If you're here this morning and you are at the end of yourself, you've come to the point where you feel as helpless as that paralytic man. You've acknowledged that for all the self-help you've tried, it's not working. It's not fixing the brokenness. If you've come to the point where you know that if God condemned you, If God sent you to hell, that it actually would be exactly what you deserved. Then Jesus is looking you right in the eyes this morning. And before you can even get a word in, he's saying, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. So how do we join Jesus in prioritizing forgiveness? Quickly, just want to share a few thoughts about that. We join Jesus in prioritizing forgiveness by confessing, hating, and repenting of sin. We join Jesus in prioritizing forgiveness by pursuing the God whom he has reconciled us to. You know, if Jesus thinks that this is the most important thing, that we be brought back into relationship with God, that we honor His priorities by pursuing God, by seeking out a healthy and vital relationship with God. We join Jesus in prioritizing forgiveness by living under the grace which, which He has freely given us. Rather than running back to the law and thinking that we have to earn our way back to God again, no, we live under the grace of Jesus that He's given to us, that if He's pronounced forgiveness in your life, that you are forgiven. And we join Jesus in prioritizing forgiveness by prioritizing forgiveness with others. And yes, I think that includes forgiving people who have wronged us, but I think it's more than that. I think it also means being willing to sometimes change the subject when people come into your life with problems. Right? Paralyzed man, drop through a roof. Your sins are forgiven? (laughs) Someone comes to you. You know, I'm having problems in my marriage. Your sins are forgiven. Someone comes to you, I'm struggling in my health. Your sins are forgiven. If Jesus felt like that was the priority, if he felt like that was what needed to happen first, we join him in prioritizing forgiveness by prioritizing forgiveness with others in our lives. Now, I know it's going to be hard to believe, but in some ways, this story is just getting started. Um, The greatest tension has yet to be resolved, has yet to be relieved. See, while I'm asking, as I read this text, while I'm asking, why did Jesus say that? There were other people there that day who were saying, can Jesus say that? Is he allowed to talk this way? And so that leads us to our third point from verses 6 through 11. Jesus alone is qualified to meet our need. Jesus alone is qualified to meet our need. If you remember from last week, we learned about these scribes. The scribes were supposed to be these teachers who were like these experts. And yet on this day, they had come to hear Jesus. They had come to hear what all the buzz around town was all about. And Mark focuses in on these scribes in verses 6 through 7. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they aren't asking why did Jesus say that. They're saying, who does Jesus think he is? And on some level, how can we blame them? I mean, this is actually how forgiveness works. If one of you came up to me and socked me in the face, and then about 10 minutes later, Ronnie went over to you and said, Your sins are forgiven, I'd be saying, Whoa, 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 hold on. You don't get to forgive them for socking me in the face, right? Forgiveness is mine to give. You know, I'm the one who was offended. And so I'm the only one who can give, give forgiveness, offer forgiveness. You can't, you can't do that. So on what authority does Jesus offer forgiveness? What gives Jesus the right to declare this man pardoned before the court of heaven? Now, I think at this point we have to be careful. I know that my initial reaction, even just the first time I read this earlier this week, my initial reaction was to think, okay, we're going to go to verse 8. We're going to point to divine omniscience and we're going to see how Jesus is proved to be God. So let's look at verse 8. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 8 reads, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? So it would be easy to say, Hey, look, uh, you know, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Mark is showing us here in verse eight that Jesus is God. But The more and more I read it, the more and more I read the passage again and again and again, I think I started to realize that might not actually be what we're supposed to see here. That may not actually be the move that Mark wants us to make. And I think that's true for two reasons. Here's the first one. When Jesus declares his own identity in verse 10 as a proof for what he's doing, he points to the fact That he is the ultimate man. Verse 10 But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus is mainly interested in proving that he is the authoritative Son of Man. Well, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, we have in the Old Testament a prediction about the Son of Man. This is how it reads. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I think this is the image that Jesus intentionally attempts to provoke in their minds when they hear him call himself the Son of Man. He's saying, I am that one. I am that king who Daniel talked about, that man whom God gave authority and dominion and glory and a kingdom. say it this way, he is the one who has come to do all that the first son of man Adam was supposed to do and to fix all that the first son of man Adam had broken. We'll come back to that. But here's the other reason why I think we need to be careful about making this move from verse 7 to verse 8. It isn't necessarily true that being able to read someone else's thoughts proves that you are God or proves that you have divine omniscience. All throughout the Old Testament, there were prophets of God who in the power of God did the very same thing. In fact, Daniel, who wrote about the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, was one of those prophets who was given a supernatural ability, a supernatural gift from God to be able to do the same sort of thing that Jesus is doing right here. And so what is Mark trying to show us? I think Mark is is intentionally trying to point us to, to the fact that Jesus is filled and anointed with the Holy Spirit and included in this Holy Spirit anointing that Jesus possessed the full measure of the Spirit, which included all of the gifts of the Spirit. Certainly, Jesus did many things which were supernatural, but He was very man of very man. Jesus is sinless man, But he was not Superman. Jesus really got hungry. Jesus really felt the pain of the slaps on his face. Jesus really had to grow in wisdom and knowledge and stature. There was no halo around his head. Jesus didn't float around six inches off the ground everywhere he went. Whatever Jesus did enjoy and exercise as a part of the divine nature... He exercised in the power and the authority of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. Jesus trusted God. Jesus worshipped God. As we saw in chapter 1, Jesus prayed to God. Jesus bore the fruit of the Spirit, and he exercised the gifts of the Spirit, just as every other human being would, by the grace and the gifting of God. All right, so what does this matter for us? Uh, when I was in college, I uh, was a part of a couple different college ministries. And one of the things that was popular at that point, I don't know if this is still something that, that people do or not, but one of the things that was popular at that point was for people who were entering the dating scene to create a non-negotiable list. And what this would be is, is you, would, you would come up with sort of a list of things and you would say, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to settle for anything less than this. You know, so you write down, you know, obviously, you know, super spiritual things and, you know, reads the Bible all day and, you know, stuff like that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it actually got out of hand. Um, what we need to realize, though, is that God God has a non-negotiable list for who the Savior of the world would be. You know, and really all throughout the Old Testament, that's, that's, that's really what the Old Testament's all about. It's showing us who this savior should have been. And it's showing us how no one from the line of Adam, no one who was born into the guilt of Adam could be that savior, could meet, could check all the boxes on that non-negotiable list. But Jesus, in calling himself the son of man, is saying, I'm him. I check all the boxes Verses 8 through 11, I want to read it and then I want to show you how Jesus, in just a few short verses, checks all the boxes for what it means to be the non negotiable Savior of the world. Verses 8 through 11, Jesus said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus heals the paralytic to prove that he is the Son of Man. I think we tend to settle when we think about who Jesus must be. When we think about what boxes he must check, we just think, well, he must be God and he must be man. But what kind of man? Could Jesus have just been anyone and done anything? Could he have just lived any sort of old life? No, it's so much more than that. All that Adam was, the first Adam, the first man was created to be before God and failed to be, Jesus was. Jesus, as the perfect son of man, came to be all that Adam was called to be and to fix all that Adam had broken. And in about 30 seconds in Mark chapter 2, Jesus simultaneously shows how he fulfills everything that Adam was supposed to be as the first son of man. So let's look at it. You could summarize who Adam was supposed to be in three short titles, and we see these short titles throughout the whole whole Old Testament. If you're ever reading your Old Testament, you're thinking, you know, what's going on here? This is a huge help. Adam was supposed to be a prophet. Adam was supposed to be a priest. And Adam was supposed to be a king. And that's what the whole Old Testament's about, prophets, priests, and kings. So the first son of man, Adam, was called to be a prophet. God delivered his word directly to Adam, and it was Adam's responsibility to take care of God's word and to apply God's word to all the people put under his care. Now, real quick, sidebar, you know, men in the room, this is our responsibility. God has called us to be the prophets in our homes and to be the prophets in our churches. We are to rightly handle the word of God and rightly apply the word of God and rightly obey the word of God. But Adam failed by disobeying God's word. The Son of Man, Jesus, this promised Son of Man, he was a perfect prophet before God. Adam disobeyed God's word, but every word that came from the mouth of Jesus was the very word of God. Jesus is the prophet that we need. He checks that box. The first son of man, Adam, was also called to be a priest. The Garden of Eden was a temple of God on the earth. And Adam, as the priest, was called to offer up appropriate worship to God, and he was called to extend the sanctuary of Eden to the ends of the earth. Side note, sidebar, men. God has given us this responsibility. We are called to lead our families in offering up appropriate sacrifices of worship to God. We are the ones who are called to pronounce the good news of the gospel to our wives and to our kids and in our churches. This is our responsibility. But Adam failed as a priest before God because he sinned and he fell from holiness. But Jesus, the promised son of man, he brings us back to God in holiness. The first priest, the first son of man, Adam, he brought guilt into the world. But the second Adam, the the second son of man, in his priestly office, brought forgiveness into the world. One brought guilt, one brought forgiveness. Jesus is the priest that we need. And finally, the first son of man, Adam, was also called to be a king. God gave him dominion. God gave him authority. God had subjected, subjected all things under his feet and given him the right to rule over the dominion of the kingdom of creation. Sidebar, men, this is our responsibility. God has given us the responsibility to lead in our families and lead in the church. But Adam failed to lead. He failed to step up. And in so doing, as he sinned, the order of creation was subverted. The man who had authority, the man who had dominion, was now a slave to the creation. Tragedy, sin. But Jesus, the promised son of man, is the faithful king who rules for God on the earth. That's what we've been seeing so far as we've been working through Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's a man who has dominion. He has dominion over demons. He has dominion over sickness. When he calls, the disciples follow him. And now when he pronounces forgiveness, it means you are forgiven. Jesus is this king And he demonstrates it in verse 11 when he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And the man raises up, picks up his bed, and he walks. Jesus, the son of man, is the king that we need. So in about 30 seconds time, Jesus demonstrates that he has come to be who Adam should have been, and he has come to fix all that Adam had broken. Jesus heals us not just because he gives us what we need. Jesus heals us because he becomes for us who we need, a new representative prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus goes even further than Adam could have ever gone, because Jesus obeys God as a prophet and priest and a king all the way to the point of death. See, when Jesus dies on the cross, he isn't just paying the penalty for you and me. He isn't just bearing in his body the wrath of God for our sin, although he is doing that. When Jesus died on the cross, he was also faithfully obeying God on our behalf. It's like Jesus is saying, I am the perfect man. And if you are in me, then before the court of heaven, you are a perfect man. And that is what gives me the right to forgive you. Because when I forgive you, I'm giving you myself. I am living life for you. John Calvin said it this way. Having become, become with us the Son of Man, He has made us with Himself sons of God. By His own descent to the earth, He has prepared our ascent to heaven. Having received our mortality, he has bestowed on us his immortality. Having undertaken our weakness, he has made us strong in his strength. Having submitted to our poverty, he has transferred to us his riches. Having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness, which with we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Jesus alone, son of God and son of man, alone meets our ultimate need. And with that, the story comes full circle, which brings us to our last point from verse 12. God is glorified through our need. God is glorified through our need. See, we think of neediness as a bad thing. We think of weakness like it's something to be despised. We look at dependence as if it's a problem. But look how this story ends in verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So what's the outcome of this man's paralysis? What's the end of the story for the man who could not help himself? The end of the story is that God is glorified. God radiates his majesty, his goodness, his mercy out as he does for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. God is not afraid of our weakness. God is not put off by our dependence. God does not want us to apologize for coming back to him again and again and again and again for help. He loves when we come to him. When the crowd says, we never saw anything like this, that is God being glorified for his grace. So, God helps those who help themselves. What a load of garbage. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And not just like a little bit of help. <laughs> the kind of help where he does everything everything he lives the life we should have lived he becomes the perfect man for us and then offers himself to us as a gift that's the good news of the gospel so how do you think about your weaknesses how do you think about other people who are weak What if God is actually more glorified by people who need his help than by people who act like they don't? J.C. Ryle was a bishop in the United Kingdom through much of the 19th century. And commenting on the end of this passage, he says something that I just really felt like was worth passing along. He says, Who can doubt that to the end of his days, this man would thank God for his paralysis. Without it, he might probably have lived and died in ignorance and have never seen Christ at all. Without it, he might have kept his sheep on the green hills of Galilee all his life long and never have been brought to Christ and never have heard these blessed words, your sins are forgiven. That paralysis was indeed a blessing. Who can tell, but it was the beginning of eternal life to his soul. How many in every age can testify that this paralyzed man's experience has been their own? They have learned wisdom by affliction. Bereavements have proved mercies. Losses have proved real gains. Sicknesses have led them to the great physician of souls, sent them to the Bible, shut out the world, shown them their own foolishness, and taught them to pray. Thousands can say like David in Psalm 1971, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We all have needs, but ultimately we all share one great deep need that we need Jesus to be for us who we could not be for ourselves. Last week we talked about Who's Your One uh, for the first time, and uh, that initiative is, is really us challenging ourselves uh, to take initiative, to care for people, to love people, to do what, whatever we have to do to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I love that we see in this story that, that one man's life was worth a long, hard day's journey. One man's life was worth ripping up the roof to get him to Jesus. One man's life was worth interrupting Jesus in the middle of his sermon. And we don't have the same exact mission as those men. We don't actually bring people to Jesus, but we have been commissioned to go and declare the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. We have the opportunity to tell people that there is a God who out of love for us became man. And he became everything that it means to be man. Like we sung earlier, Fullness of God in helpless babe wow this is the God who we proclaim our self help our self forgiveness our self esteem it is not working we need Jesus and he is offering himself to us this morning let's pray and then we're going to worship together God, we praise You that in Your Son, Jesus Christ, You are doing for us what we could not have even imagined to think or ask for. God, if it had been up to us, we would have just tried again and again and again and again to no avail. We would have tried again and again and again and again and continued to fail in our self-sufficiency. So God, that you sent Jesus for us, that you sent grace in the package of a human being is beyond our comprehension. Lord, teach us to love our weaknesses if it means that Christ is strong in us. Lord, teach us to love dependence if it means that we get to lean on your never-ending strength. Lord, we praise you and none of us this morning exalts ourselves. But instead, we exalt that that perfect man, Jesus Christ, who has done everything necessary for us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when just like this man who first received forgiveness but then received a healed body, Lord, we know too that first you meet us with your saving grace. First, you forgive us in the court of heaven, but one day you are going to make the earth new. You are going to redeem the whole creation. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We lift your name up this morning. It's in Jesus' name we continue to worship. Amen.